This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the podcast that wants to remind you there's nothing sexier than six little words. Sit down, honey. I'll do it. I'm your co-host, Alice Vaughn, and with me is my gorgeous co-host, as usual, Kate Kennedy. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am doing all right. Uh, So is there anything sexier than those words? I don't know. I wrote like three pages of announcing cam girls like racehorses yesterday. So my brain is broken. But holy cow, can you make a lot of sexual puns about jockeys? Let me tell (laughs) you. I know we had this conversation yesterday, but there needs to be a jockey porn parody or something of sort. I just want a jockey to ride Lauren Phillips. Maybe that's my problem. With the little hat and the boots. Be so cute. With us on the show today, we have someone who knows all about pleasing women. Maybe not with words, maybe with words. I don't know. I hope with some words because it is a podcast. It's pretty word based. (laughs) I hope so too. We have kind of play on the show with us. I think GQ was the one that dubbed you a sex hacker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does one become a sex hacker? The job that I had before being a sex educator and a sex hacker is that I was in the fitness industry. So I love the idea of biohacking and fitness hacking. So, and I'm probably the world's most unlikely porn star sex educator out there. But I use the same method that they use in the fitness industry and apply it to sex education. Then it's really fascinating collecting different sex hacker technique from like tantra master to kinkster to neuroscientists and put them all together. And probably the world's most famous sex hack is the vibrator because it's what's supposed to be meant for muscle use. <laughs> well, <laughs> but we know where people put it. so <laughs> And it probably led to more orgasm than any other sex hack that I know of. I just did a segment on this uh, because vibrators are also good for something else. So if you know anything about biology, it's very hard for field researchers to determine the sex of animals in the wild. But some researchers, I think in North Carolina, were using a vibrator to have male turtles show themselves. And it was actually very, very effective and cost effective, (laughs) too. I just did a story about this. Turtle tickler. I found that out when we were doing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle episode, and I was genuinely shocked with how long the turtle penises were. So not only do they get to live longer, but they are longer. So it kind of broke my heart a little bit. Um, But I never thought that sex hacker was an option as a career choice. I mean, first off, you sold me when I read on your website where you said, I'm a sexually insecure Asian immigrant with an average size cock, or actually you were. In my opinion, look, as the daughter of immigrants, there were only three job options growing up. Um, I didn't realize it was doctor, lawyer, sex hacker. Hey, me too, but my dad wanted to be a, me a dentist because he's British. Well, like Jimmy O. Yang said, you know, for Asian parents, following your dream is how you become homeless, so... <laughs> so. But you were in the house when you were recording this. Luckily, I'm not homeless yet. Yeah. (laughs) That we're aware of or a really good Zoom background. Yeah. Yeah. Room Raider would give you 10 out of 10. Thank you. Excellent flower plant choices. And what I love is that you care about science-based techniques. So I almost want to start with what are we getting wrong? Wow. uh... I don't know if I'm getting anything wrong. (laughs) I probably am. (laughs) 
you know, there's a lot more research out there. Currently, me and my other business partner, Dr. Jana, we are currently running the world's largest online survey on squirting. So we're going to turn that into a research. The last sample size that we could find when we did a lit review on the topic, it was like less than 400. We collected 8,000 samples so far. So we are being a total size queen when it comes to like squirting data. And I've been, I taught squirting for a really long time, something that I sort of like famous for on Pornhub. So we are now collecting all the scientific data that we could find and, and trying to on one hand, not over-glorifying squirting, on the other side is that to, to remove some of the stigma, but that is something that many people experience and we want to kind of share people's different perspective and their view and also answer some of the questions that everyone have about squirting, so. Well, let's start. What are the most common questions about squirting that you get? And my question is, how long before your finger's cramped? <laughs> it depends on whose finger it is. But, um, well, everybody asks if, it, if it's pee first. So we act, we do have some decent data on what's like in the liquid. So there is two types of ejaculate that we could find. That one comes, one comes to the bladder is what you see in porn. And then the other one is from your urethral sponge comes out of the sleeve gland, which is like a more milky white substance. But based on our data so far, I think one of the cool hypotheses is that everything's sort of, you know, get engorged in your genital. And... I think this paints illustrate a better picture. Imagine a guy have like a crazy hard on. It's really hard for him to pee, right? So mm. those the same urethral sponge gets gets the same engorgement. So it's preventer, the sphincter from from releasing the liquid. But somehow, sometime orgasm overrides that signal. But the liquid that builds up in your bladder, and this is still a hypothesis that doing sexual stimulation, it just fills up a lot faster than you would when we're just making good old urine. So just say, if you just pee before you go into a sexual situation, your bladder might fill up a lot quicker than your normal time. And we think that maybe is a way of like, you know, getting the whole area engorged so you feel better, it's more squishy, or it prevents from infection and things that could flush it out after you have sex. So we don't know yet. So we're still analyzing the data. I feel like those all sound like really good hypotheses. Like yeah. all of that that you just said makes total sense to me as someone that like, and yeah, I will confirm that. If you see it in porn, it's pee. It smells good because they drink like two giant things of Pedialyte, but there's no <laughs> possible fucking way that a human being can just naturally squirt and have it be like a literal water. Like it doesn't look like a water fountain. Like yeah. it doesn't look like a shower head. It doesn't ruin your favorite pair of black leather shoes. Thank you, Kimmy Granger. <laughs> it, yeah, definitely comes from your bladder, but it's it's definitely way more diluted than urine. But if you have urine previously in your bladder before you go into a sexual situation, some would come out, you know, so it depends on what you're mixing at the bar, you know. That makes sense. Yeah. Can most women squirt and not realize it? Is this something that not only a certain percentage of women squirt? Is, is there something that some people are missing in order to make people squirt? I'm curious. Well, first of all, I just want to always acknowledge I'm always like mansplaining female pleasure. So I always talk about it like I own one. So so I want to put that into context. Look, you've studied it more than I have. You probably yeah, studied so, more than I have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny. I was when I was working on my book, I realized I know female anatomy way better than male anatomy. So I was like, oh, I need to brush up on that stuff. Um, so I think one of the key things is 
to put it into the experience that most female do not masturbate by penetrating themselves when they start off masturbating. They usually just rub their external vulva for some type of sensation. Depending on the cultural context, right, you want to save it for your first time, so you don't want to pop your hymen. It's a whole thing with virginity, which I think is bullshit, but is widely practiced, right? And you want that time to be special and sacred and important. However, most of the time when people have their initial experience with penetrated sex, first of all, it's like it could be painful, they're nervous, they don't know what they're feeling. And when you have your G-spot stimulated, which is a response to pressure, is a, your visual nerve is more in the inside where it responds to pressure, it might feel like you got to pee a little, right? So imagine you're like your first time people having sex, they feel like, oh shit, I'm going to pee on my partner, this is uncomfortable. So most of the time unconsciously they start clamping those muscles, right? Like you want like the same muscle you hold to rid whole urine. So you have this association with that sensation holding down. So a lot of times it's actually teaching people that that sensation is perfectly normal. And you bear down a little bit and you change the context, which is the context really changed your subjective experience. So a lot of time is really about letting go and not like holding in a fart. <laughs> You know, and then once you learn how to do it, then it becomes much more pleasurable. But not everybody needs to squirt. And some people find it extremely pleasurable and they have an orgasm while they squirt. And some people have just squirt and no orgasm. So it's really subjective depending on the person, just like food preference. Some people love it. I want to totally corroborate that with the relaxing of the muscles because when I was in porn, like when I first got into porn, I was like, I don't squirt. It's never happened. It's, it's happened once or twice, but there's no way. Like I can't do it in porn. And they're like, okay. And then like six months later, like you really have to figure this out. This is a big thing. You're missing out on work. So I literally had to like, <laughs> I drank a ton of like a shit ton of water, so much water. So it felt like I was going to burst. And then I like got in my bathtub and I did what men have done to me in the past or partners have done with me in the past, which was like this two finger on the mm-hmm. G spot, just, yeah. I mean, like wildly yeah. trying to do this. And that was how I learned to do it, but it was because I was relaxed and I was by myself. And then once I figured that out, like that, once you, I feel like you feel that physical sensation, it's not nearly as hard to repeat it. Mm-hmm. I did have to practice a few times and I have had it, like I was always still a little bit cautious of taking squirting scenes because the added pressure of being like, that is the point of the scene. This has to happen. I'm on set with all of these people whose jobs depend on this. Like that would add to it for me where I, the very last scene I did was a squirting scene and I couldn't do it. I was so stressed because it was we were about to go into lockdown <laughs> oh, no. and it was like raining and I was just like it was a last minute thing. and I was in downtown L.A. and like it was oh, it was like just a very stressful day and I had to keep excusing myself to go to the bathroom and like do, try that again and chug water. And I felt and everyone is very supportive, of course, on, like no one's mad at me, but I'm like freaking out and that made it much harder. Yeah, it's a reflex that you learn to control. Just like, you know, if I poke the space between your eyes, you will blink automatically, but you could consciously keep your eyes open. So once you figure out that neural control and then what that sensation feels like, and then you just bear down at the right time, then usually it happens. So I teach a lot of couples on how to do it. I teach people on which technique is like have the highest percentage of, you know, success rate for non-squirter. It really depends on the person. I didn't know that thing about between the eyes. Whenever someone goes to take my temperature at like a restaurant, I'm always uh, like, uh, like it's yeah. going to hurt. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. What I find fascinating is I love how you teach people 
all these different techniques, you do it visually. Mm-hmm. And it makes so much more sense because growing up, uh, you know, trying to read from a pamphlet or a book, and most by book, I mean mostly the Bible, on how to have sex. If it's the Bible, it's mostly about boning your cousins. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love the hands-on approach that you literally do. And I, I frankly think more sex educators need to take that approach because I feel, I mean, and I've been doing this podcast for over two and a half years. I still feel like an idiot at times. And I need someone to show me like how to do something or where something to go. What I'm saying is IKEA is not wrong to print out photo instructions. This is how we learn, or at least how I learn. Yeah, I found video and VR to be the most effective because in the fitness industry, when you're teaching someone a movement pattern, there's a certain like cues and education framework around it. So I actually use literally what we do in the fitness industry and just apply it to sex. And then God, like I, you know, I decided to do it. And then I got tons of feedback on how much people love that style of tutorial because it's literal. And I'm like, I'm not just doing it. You know, a lot of times it's like they're just doing a thing and then they don't explain it. So I show and tell every little step. And then I show the variant. So like not every vulva works exactly the same. So I go like give a little context. She usually likes a lot of pressure, sensitive here. And this is how why I'm approaching this vulva this way versus this vulva would do it a little differently just like what kate was saying earlier if she feels performance anxiety on a squirting scene then i would actually focus on relaxing her more than just trying to do a thing to her pussy so i think that show and tell really helps people to give some some context rather than i'm just like wiggle your finger like this you know which shout out to casey and mo for giving me all of the support and love and making me feel like it was totally okay So I have to ask, what is your most watched video to date? Yeah, on squirting. <laughs> on Pornhub, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Why do you think that appeals to so many people? Is it like a visual thing? Is it a like, oh my God, I made you come so hard thing? What What is your theory on why? Because people fucking love it. Why do you think they love it so much? I think first is that when you see biological male have an orgasm, you equate the ejaculation as a visual cue. And there's something very satisfying to our brain when we have the thing, you know, like some type of notification. Unfortunately, squirting is not the right notification of pleasure orgasm. It just means like this particular thing happened. But I think a lot of men will feel that is like they did their job or they did something. So there's a lot of ego to it. And yeah, that's a double-edged sword, right? Because uh, sometimes when people ask me to teach them or they watch my video, they want to do it to their partner rather than sharing a pleasurable experience. So, you know, I think coaching that context is very important, but it's also a very big visual, you know, and then there's evidence on the bed, you know, so they get, people could really eroticize that. But I also met a lot of women who don't enjoy that experience, are embarrassed by it, and teaching, asking me how to not do that. Then I could teach the yeah. opposite. If you don't want to squirt, this is the <laughs> muscle you can track and you know hold it. But it might not be pleasurable for you because it could be involuntary. So there'd be yeah. a little bit of coaching and conditioning and et cetera, because you get more inhibit, so you don't enjoy it as much. But you know, there's different people who wants different thing. But it's also such a popular search term, and it's a whole genre by itself. So. Yeah, it's very popular. I lived with an involuntary squirter for a while. Uh, and like the amount of laundry she should have been doing, but wasn't. <laughs> There's a reason I didn't live there that long. But like, <laughs> holy shit. I was just like, this would be so inconvenient. Like, I'm so yeah. glad I don't. I have to like try to do this. Like, I, mm. I can do it for a movie. Thank God I don't do this every time. Because like, I have a limited number of sheets. 
There's a really good sex hack for involuntary squirter. Buy a extra large puppy pad on Amazon and then put a towel underneath. It's such a like saver. You just throw the like towel in the laundry and throw away the puppy pad and then you're good to go. I think she literally had like a rubber mattress. Like she didn't even have a normal mattress. It was like a plastic topped mattress. It was really loud. But plastic top has issue. Plastic top accumulate the liquid and then it just seep to the side onto your floor. So they're... The puppy pad absorb it is the key. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason I didn't live there that long. <laughs> I was just thinking to myself that, you know, when you're sleeping on top of a plastic padded mattress, it's generally a lot hotter too. Oh, yeah. No, it's like that special sheet that Timmy has to use in that after school special. I mean, I have a waterproof mattress cover as well, but it's not really for squirting so much as it is for my habit of like drinking coffee in bed and spilling it. So... <laughs> That's really more for that. I'm clumsy. I spilled wine all over my couch last night. It just, it happens. You need a granny fi your couches, Kate. Oh my God. (laughs) My grandma has a couch like that. That's like, it's like a silk, just down stuffed couch and it's reserved for the Pope or JFK if he comes back to life. Like, it's in her living room. I'm not allowed to sit on it. I've never sat on that couch. I'm just saying that if JFK came back to life in the way he was shot, it probably wouldn't be pretty. Yeah, I mean... may need that covering. (laughs) It could be a whole new genre of porn just squirting on top of plastic furniture with plastic cover. You know, it's like shiny and people could make it into a kink. (laughs) My spidey senses are tingling. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What do you hear is money, Kate? Yeah. (laughs) No, I just found out I have to direct like two new pornos like yesterday. So I'm like, oh, Oh, shit, I have to come up with some ideas. (laughs) (laughs) So is this time to pitch you on our fantasy porns of what we need to see out there? Yeah, because he was like, go make the kind of porn you want to see. And I was like, cool, my cancellation is imminent. Like, (laughs) no one's going to talk to me ever again. Dune. Make the (laughs) porn version of Dune. With the nose snake thing? Yes. That's kind of hot. Have we had like a Gordon Ramsay porn? I'm on a 24-hour, you know, restaurant revival kick right now. I wrote one called Milf Busters the other day. Hasn't Milf Busters been done? I don't think so. I don't know. I, I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> like, hold on. Like Milf Busters? Like Myth Busters? Like Ghostbusters. I mean, initially it was Ghostbusters, but I think Myth Busters makes more sense. But I guess the myth could be, I don't know what the myth is, but I just think it's fun. I also, the Ghostbusters (laughs) thing was because I like, I have a jumpsuit thing. The myth is, can this woman squirt or not? And then you make her squirt. There's a good one. That's a good one. On the plastic couch. Gilfbusters. What are some other myths other than uh, squirting that you've heard? Because maybe we could throw it into Kate's Milfbusters, Mythbusters parody. That may or may not happen. You know what's funny? Uh, just a very simple video my business partner did, Do Women Enjoy Giving Blowjob, has way more views. So there's this, this notion that I don't know how many guys believe that women enjoy giving blowjob or not enjoying. So you could do one that women hate gi- giving blowjob. Or <laughs> I used to hate it. I hated it for years. I did not like it at all. And then something like clicked in my head one day and I got good at it. And when you're mm-hmm. good at it, oh, it's really fun. Yeah, because like then you just want to show off. Well, you show off, but also like I get off on making people happy. Like that's at the end of the day. Like I'm like a submissive. Like please, are like that's what I am. And so like the sounds of somebody or like like my last ex would be like all the time. Like oh my god, Kate. Oh my god, Kate. 
oh my God, that's amazing. Holy fucking <laughs> fuck yeah. And I would be like, oh, I love you. Drunk with power. <laughs> it was, yeah, because he was just so happy. And I was like causing that reaction. The same reason I do stand up comedy because he was like so happy. And I was the cause of that happiness. Your reenactment is and awesome. And like, oh, too vocal in bed. I was like, you can say more. Tell me how great I am. I love this. <laughs> love this for me. Another thing that I saw actually on your site was clitoracy and edging. So first off, what is clitoracy? And um, I don't think we've had a conversation about edging on this show yet. So clitoracy is basically how well people generally know about female anatomy and then the whole structure. So the clit is, you know, most people see the little pee in the pot or a man on a boat kind of situation, but there's so much more and that's only the tip of the gland and there's so much more nerves that go into their entire complex. So I love uh, educating people on their science. I'm a science nerd first. So I love all their like nerve innovation, how it varies from vulva to vulva and how to calibrate. So there's this idea, first you need to develop your erotic cues so you could read people, like what they're feeling and then you're able to calibrate. And then once you're able to calibrate, then you really connect with your partner. And then the last part is that you could express yourself fully. And I think that art form. So you need to have both the scientific understanding, like you learn how to play an instrument, then you could play it. So so I love explaining like the music theory behind the, <laughs> behind the instrument. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I also, props on the name. I love good names like that. Clitoracy, that's great. That wasn't, that, that wasn't for me if, from like a clitoracy project. So yeah, that was an <laughs> art project, yeah. Most of my skills are just naming things, cute things. I would say that's my number one. Like, tat, like unfortunately, I'm not like a paint color sample namer. That would be... Actually, no, it wouldn't. I do help Alice come up with the names for her crayons sometimes. <laughs> I think what we need to do is we need to create incentives and programs because, look, we all know that the way most of America was educated literacy-wise was through Pizza Hut's book program, you know, <laughs> where you if you read enough books, you get a free pizza. And for clitoracy, we need something very similar, maybe with Papa John's or Domino's. They need to step it up. But, you know, maybe like lick 10 vulvas and you get a pizza. Hot Pockets. <laughs> Get a hot pocket, yes. <laughs> Jim Gaffigan will actually show up at your door. <laughs> I love that. No, I do think it's important. Most people learn about like the Clinton stuff through porn, like even I did. And like that's not a great way to learn about that because it's not having been on like both sides of it, it's not necessarily real. And usually, like good stimulation doesn't really translate to looking good on camera, at least the way that like regular studio porn is shot. So if you're just recreating what you're seeing in those videos, like it's not going to feel good. It's like trying to learn how to play basketball by watching like the 97 like all-star team. You can't go out and recreate that dunk. It's not even going to feel good. Yes, I can. <laughs> I believe in you. Don't tell me what I can't do. I'm a white woman in this country. I can do anything. <laughs> I think it's more like watching the Fast and Furious where their physics doesn't apply. So, so imagine you learn how to drive by watching the Fast and the Furious, which is quite entertaining, but it's, it's not yeah. like a realistic representation of pleasure. So Okay, fair enough. I think men are really craving that too, you know. For the last couple of years, they, you know, they've been getting a lot of shit and 
and then this might be a gross generalization, it seems that like most straight bros is selfish in bed and they don't care. And I was very surprised at how many how many guys actually really care and they want to learn and they want to please their partner, they want to figure it out, and it's really sweet. Yeah, I like that trend in social media in general in the discourse the last few years where it's like, hey, we come to and we want to. And we would like to do it with you guys instead of just only by ourselves. Because for, I would say, the vast majority of my sexual experiences, I did not orgasm during. I've definitely had some great ones, but even me, most of them, I didn't actually come. Even in porn, I didn't really come. Cause, but that's also different because it's not the focus. Let's talk about edging. What is edging and should people do it? What's the point? I'm curious because maybe I've edged, maybe I haven't. I need a definition here, Kenneth. So edging is basically when your arousal is built to a certain point where you're like a point of no return and then you have an orgasm. So there's sort of degrees when you get up to there. Just say when you reach eight or nine is involuntary or just like even if you don't do anything, it kind of just tip you over like it's like a sad <laughs> orgasm. Ruin orgasm is an extra genre in porn. But there is a magical space between right before you reach the point of no return in that zone, in that edging zone. So to get a little bit more technical, your sympathetic arousal is building up to a point where all your awareness and your senses is heightened. You know, like right before you come, like your genital feels so much better the moment you're coming than the previous, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds. So you are priming your brain to focus on that sensation. And I use edging a lot to teach people how to have other types of orgasm, like meaning different stimulations. So just say you never had an anal orgasm before, but your clit is a star player. And not that you need to have an anal-only orgasm to make it worthwhile. Obviously, a blended is more the popular choice. But you could use the clit as the pump of your sympathetic arousal, get to that zone, and you could get your ass to tip you over, and then your brain learn a new thing. So it's a very useful tool to learn. So you could think of, you know, everybody have a different star player. The clit is very popular. So you could use that as the builder and just slow it down just enough that you don't tip over and try the new thing to tip you over. And then your brain kind of, re not rewire, but it creates a new connection and you have more ways to come. So how long does edging usually last? I'm curious. Are you just extending it by little or by a lot? You could do it a lot. It depends on some people, Kingster could like edge you for, I don't know, three, four days before they let you come, which is more of a psychological kinky. And I love kink. So there's time. something very powerful and delicious about that. And denial is a, an anticipation. Who has that time? That, that hey, could be you know really what? fun. When you're, when you're trapped in a fake human trafficking situation in a motel in Elgin, Illinois, you've got nothing but time. I watched like two seasons of Real Housewives <laughs> Beverly Hills those days, Alice. <laughs> you have lots of time to do yeah. this. I'm also a kinky mother. I actually used to be also a sex educator in the kink and BDSM world. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I love to edge. I do it to myself. I'll just lay in bed and like, kind of masturbate for like four hours i'll be like yeah. and then I'll, I'll turn it off and i'll think about something else and then i'll do it again and then i'll do it again and then i just lay there and then when i finally come i'm like oh, let's do it again and then yeah. i come like 20 times i'm like this is because the buildup is yeah because the buildup it's also really fun when you have a good dom that just know how to keep you on that edge that you really like really 
surrender to the whole experience, you're completely mm-hmm. letting go, which is what makes the whole inhibitory excitatory system work really well. So edging and king is sort of manipulating those systems that we have in our brain to enhance experience. So yeah, it's such a fun experience. And yeah, you have that when you have that really good dynamic with a partner that you're doing it with too, is can be such like a psychological mind fuck. It can build it, build it up. Like it is such a like, oh, it, it's such a fun thing because it really is your, your own body almost like working against you because mm-hmm. it does like, I mean, that's I, to me, that's always been the point of kink is to blend that like physical experience with that psychological experience. And I think that's what makes it so fucking hot. A little bit of erotic obstacle makes it a little harder for a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. Would you say it helps with getting people to get to multiple orgasms or is that totally separate? No, absolutely. So you could also, this is a hypothesis, so we still don't know for sure, but there's something called like your nerve bleaching. So if I shine a really bright light to your eye, you're temporary, not blind, but you see like a white white spot, right? So the same theory goes when you have an orgasm, your clit become like really sensitive and doesn't want touch right at that moment. So if you created more sites, meaning more ways for you to induce an orgasm, then you could rotate those nerve endings because they're less irritated. So just say if I could go from a clit orgasm to a G-spot and then anal and then a combination and then switch toy, there is new sensation for your nerve to continue to respond to sexual pleasure. So edging is another form you could use to kind of develop more more ways. Not that people need to have so many different flavor to enjoy sex. So some people are, I'm good with my clit. Like, I like it this way. It's all good. We're Baskin-Robbins here. Yeah. <laughs> all 27 flavors. 31. Yeah, you want the flavor, yeah. They're, oh, shit. <laughs> I clearly have missed a few. 31 flavors. That's their thing. That's their logo. Yeah. It's literally a 31. Yeah. Did you know there were two guys named Baskin and Robin and they owned separate ice cream shops called Baskins and Robins and then they came together? I just read about this the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Totally off topic, but sorry for interrupting your point, but (laughs) all right. So trivia fact, I just had to relearn. Started right here in Southern California. I always have experienced anal orgasms. I've loved anal since like the first time I tried it. I've always liked it. I come really hard from it. Like I've always enjoyed it. I don't even really need clitoral stimulation when I'm doing it. Like it's, I've always liked, I've never understood people that don't. I'm always just like, how do you not come from this? But everyone's different. Like, I didn't know I was so weird until I got into porn. Everyone was like, what? And I was like, yes, I love this. Like, I used to be, like, on anal scenes, and then I'd be like, oh, my God, it just came so hard. And they'd be like, really? I'm like, yeah, this is, like, the one time I didn't lie about it. Like, I meant it this time. You're a national treasure. (laughs) It's a dirty job. Someone's got to do it. Every time I, I feel like I speak to someone who's doing an anal scene, it's like, I gotta prep for a month for this, man. Bullshit. No, no fucking shit. Okay, here, uh, you know what? I don't want to get canceled. I'm not t- lying when I say there's girls in the industry who have told me that. Everyone's different. I think personally, this is my hypothesis, is that most of it su- is surrounding nerves. Kind of like squirting is a little for me. Like where girls are so... And I mean, it is kind of nerve wracking, especially when you're doing it like on a porn scene where there's other people there. Like no one wants to shit themselves in front of other people. That's pretty humiliating, no matter what you're into for most people. But uh, I'm being kink inclusive here. (laughs) But like, yeah, I mean, everyone's digestive system is different. But here's the like for me, I mean, I used to do last minute anal scenes all the time. I would wake up at 7 a.m. to a phone call from my agent being like, can you be downtown in two hours to do an anal gangbang? And I'd be like, absolutely. 
Because it's just once you know how your like digestive system works and how your body works and like when I was working a lot and I knew there was a chance, like I would just kind of would stop eating at like seven o'clock the night before. Because if I'm waking up at 7 a.m., it's been 12 hours. Anything that's in my system is going to be flushed out for the most part. So, and then, I mean, there's different hacks with it too. Like I would always just like rinse out and then I would take an Imodium because that kind of stops your system. But I never starved. Like, and I would, to this day, I would really advise girls against starving themselves to do an anal scene because I knew girls that wouldn't eat for 15, 16 hours, up to 24 hours beforehand. And I just don't know how you can do that. Your blood sugar would be so low. Like you'd have no energy for the scene. I don't understand how that would work, honestly. Like obviously don't eat Taco Bell. So there's very few girls who are diabetic who do anal scenes is what I'm hearing. I would imagine (laughs) it would be incredibly hard on you if you had any kind of like blood sugar or thyroid or digestive issue in general, I would I would imagine almost would be off, at least in porn, it would be off the table because when I have anal in my personal life, like I still prep, but it's nowhere near to the degree that it is if it's like, okay, my butthole's going to be on camera. It's different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I knew people when I was doing like BDSM and kink stuff where they would just be like, I just put a soapy finger up there in the shower that morning. Fine. <laughs> Some yeah. people are more brave about it than others. <laughs> Shit happens. Look, I know that for each their own, you know, and each their own butthole, uh, you know, some people that take more time to stretch than others down there. And, you know, I think the reason that a lot of people don't like it is because they have a bad experience yeah. when they, you know, generally with their first anal. Yeah. Kenneth, maybe I'm wrong when I say that, but that's at least been my experience whenever I speak to people who've, you know, done a little bit of anal penetration. It's something that you need to work up to. You can't just get a doorknob in it on your first try. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the education is so important. I think our education should definitely perceive our experience when it comes to sex, ideally, right? You don't want to have no idea and then you're, let me just try this. And especially if your first experience is not pleasurable or whatever emotional feelings that you have around it also stays in your body. So your body, those get fires together, get wired together. So it takes a little time to kind of detrain, like, oh, I ate this the first time. It was horrible. I'm not going to eat this again kind of feeling. But it, it could be pleasurable. But also people don't need to do anal. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Yeah. So whatever. On the topic of anal, obviously, the more lube, the better. Have you, either of you, uh, ever real like figured, like, hey, this lube works, like, a million times better, like, silicone-based or water or whatever it might be for anal than others? Silicone-based is generally the gold standard for anal, especially in porn, because water-based can get tacky, mm-hmm. and you don't want that. So I had a silicone allergy for a while that kind of came out of nowhere, um, where what would happen is if people put it on any of my genitals, they would turn bright red and like swell up. And it was incredibly painful. It felt like having a bee sting like on your vagina. It was really, really painful. And for whatever reason, uh, it luckily cleared up and it didn't. I tried a couple of different brands. I don't know if it was specific to like a couple of ingredients in whatever I had been using. But yeah, definitely silicon is the best. I know some people like coconut oil. I don't care for it. I find it gritty. Coconut oil is safe. Olive oil is not. You should not use olive oil as lube. I know people that believe that you can. Not all oil is equal. Seriously? Yeah, no, it'll get rancid. There's a very high risk of infection. Please don't use olive oil as lube. I'm shocked that people do. Yeah. 
Plus, everything smells like pesto. <laughs> There's a fun gay boy brand. Just rub some pine nuts in there. Call. I can't believe it's not boy butter, so you could try that too. <laughs> I used, uh, let's see, I like uh, liquid. I think it's what it's called. Uh, I used to go to a bunch of BDSM conventions, and you'd always get just packages and packages of lube samples. AVN does those too, mm-hmm. where you can try them out. But, I mean, it's definitely what's going to work best for you. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend silicone lube. I, if Here's the thing. If I am needing lube for like vaginal penetration, I will go with coconut oil because for me, that's fine. And also coconut oil is antifungal, which is really good if you're having vaginal intercourse because you lessen your chances of getting like a yeast infection or something like that. So and if you're prone to those at all, that's kind of a nice thing because not only do you have lube, you're also kind of protecting yourself against the potential for infection. Ooh, out of curiosity, so speaking of lube, uh, so this is not a paid spot promotion, but it is something that I'm a huge fan of. Have either of you guys tried the Bad Dragon Cum Lube? Yes, yes. I have. Yes. How amazing is it? <laughs> At least for me, I maybe I haven't tried enough lube out, but I think it's it lasts really long. It's amusing if you want to like have string cheese almost like on your fingers like webs. Yeah, it's great for theater. <laughs> it, it is. It's great for, especially for like any kind of solo or camming or like content you're doing. It can. It's very useful that that exists. I used to keep a sample bottle of it in my travel bag actually for porn for fake cum, especially if they wanted it like on like a fake cream pie. Because sometimes even if it's a real cream pie, they want to like make it look like a bigger one. And I don't. Oh, yeah. yeah. And usually what they use for fake cum on porn is um, Cetaphil. Like the yeah. facial lotion, which is fine on your face, but it's, I don't really want it on my vulva. So, but yeah, I mean, great consistency. So, props to them for coming out with a great lube, in my opinion. I do find the smell a little bit, I feel like it kind of smells like Play Doh. A little I don't bit, love right? The yeah. Smell. <laughs> so, if you're listening, Bad Dragon, good product. Maybe rethink the fragrance. Throw some lavender oil in there. Yeah, <laughs> something fresh. Like, I don't mind the smell of sex. Like, the smell of sex can be very hot depending on where it is. Like, you've been on enough closed sets in, like, people's basements that, like, where it's just you can almost see it in the air that you're breathing it in and you're like, okay, I wish this smelled like laundry. Where is the fresh scent of Tide when I need it? (laughs) Oh, that's the sponsorship we need. I know, right? Bad Dragon and Tide. (laughs) New Tide Pod Challenge. Right? Get the stains out of your orgy sheets. Yeah. Something final to go in your mouth. I do find that lube stains very badly. Oh, my God. Silicone is the worst. It makes the stains on your sheets. Like mm-hmm. we, I also co-founded a sex-positive intentional community, so we throw a lot of sex party, and we have to have specific sheets for those one that's going to be stained forever. So, what are the best sheets for sex parties? The one you throw away often. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the cheap ones. <laughs> no, no, no. The two no. for twenty dollars. The ones on you Amazon. pick up at Party City for a dollar. But for twenty. I bet if Ty makes a Squirt edition for their laundry brand, like their sub brand, <laughs> Squirt. And it was <laughs> was sell really well. <laughs> Get out all your nasties. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's one of those things that's never on that laundry chart of how to get out, you know, like yeah. stains, like red wine, pour white wine on it, oh, blood, a- ice water, grass, whatever, chalk, oil. They never tell you how to get lube out. That's what I need to know, Pinterest. That's a perfect MILF episode. MILF buster episode, yeah. <laughs> that is a good one. 
Yeah. Can we use baking soda or vinegar or hot water? What's best? Squirt cum lube trying to test it out like an OxyClean commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Billy Mays <laughs> here. And the OxyClean guy comes out. I think somebody will have have some fantasy about OxyClean guy. <laughs> and then Mr. Oh, Clean man. come out. Come on. <laughs> My boss is going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. With enough Coke, you could just get the real Billy Mays from the dead. Maybe he can sit on my grandma's couch. Mm. Bet she'd let him. Um, so you were talking about like your sex intentional community and you guys do parties. That's really cool. How did that come all come together? And can you tell us like a little bit what those are like? It's called Hacienda. So we have five different locations. We have a house. In, I've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we, I've heard of this too, actually. My business partner, uh, Andrew Sparksfire, started it. And then I helped him build the first intentional community. So I, this is the house that I'm in. So we have, we live with 14 people. But during the pandemic, we've been like just isolating each floor because we have the really big floor. But we could host people up to like 200 plus people for a big party. So it's like a Burning Man culture-ish mixed with sex positive culture and then i've been really fortunate to host a lot of the education stuff and invite other sex educators here so we both do the social bit or uh, sex party bit and all the education and also fighting for sex worker rights and other events that we could host and support the community and we kind of have a platform to empower other people to kind of share our culture because i think sex positive community is really changing learning a lot more about sex because we deal with it a lot so maybe that culture could be spread to the rest of mainstream culture is our, our goal i love that thank you guys for doing that like fighting the good fight I feel like a lot of people don't understand that like that kind of culture of like sex positivity and sex parties has come so far from like the 70s, like key parties. I still know so many people that that is very much their stereotype. And I, mm. I, I use the same example. I'm like, it's way more like Burning Man. Mm-hmm. As someone who's never been a burner, I need a little bit more information. It's very creative. It's very open minded. It's a lot of communication, okay. a lot of education. It's very like a culture, like... Mm-hmm. No, I don't want to say it's a full identity, but it's definitely a very big part of a lot of like their uh, people's identity. Okay, in in doing this, yeah, and like like when I was doing that kind of stuff regularly and traveling, I mean, it was like my whole life. I was putting in thirty forty hours a week, teach whether it was teaching classes, preparing for parties, hosting parties, traveling to go do conventions. Like it really, I mean, it got to a point. That's part of why I got into porn. It got to a point where it was the. I guess point of no return. I was like, I have to start getting paid for this because for a lot of people, and, and that's the other thing, there's a huge volunteer ethos in that kind of community, very similar to Burning Man, where you're very much expected to help out. I once had to make 20 pounds of pulled pork for a Father's Day barbecue <laughs> for a bunch of kinksters. They're like, go do this. And you're like, okay, you help out like other members of the community. It's a little hippy to be. It's fun. It, it's a cool mm-hmm. way to live. I, I like admire it. Yeah. There's a whole thing about responsible hedonism. So you would think like when you go to Burning Man, you have 80,000 people high as a kite on a desert and the whole place would be trash. But people are really anal retentive about not leaving trash anywhere. So within our culture, like negotiating consent, uh, communicating very clearly, explicitly, more sober, more fun at a sex party. I think those are things that we really want to continue to strengthen that culture and, and have that in their everyday world. I think it would make sex a lot more pleasurable. You know, people will experience like as a major harm reduction on that side. And on top of it, people discover what they really like. And our whole tagline is what, uh, where your desire belongs. So I think when people ever find 
where their desire belong, the sense of belonging and community, they feel a lot more accepted and grounded and socialized with other people. Oh, that's wonderful. The sex clubs that I worked at were very much similar to like comedy clubs in that like this is our home and like we protect it and we're very like, you know, we have t-shirts and we volunteer and like we help stack the chairs at the end of the night because we love this and we want it to stay around. And The sex parties and sex clubs that you're describing are way better than the one time we had a sex club owner on the show who was very exclusionary and kind of a dick. Um, (laughs) I guess what I'm saying is I'm glad to hear that the one conversation that I had with someone was the wrong one. Yeah, there's definitely different version of different community. I think they're evolving and changing and different people have different preference. When I, when I was traveling and teaching, I've been on, I was, like a swinger uh, cruise with 4,000 people, you know, on it. And it's very different experience than like a small get together of 20 of your friends that you like to fuck, you know, like, so completely different experience and everything has their pros and cons and what people enjoy. Yeah. I do find, and not to paint with a broad brush, but I, cause I worked at BDSM clubs and kink clubs, leather clubs, swingers clubs. And I did always find swingers to be, Generally, the population that was the most maybe out of touch with that very heavy consent culture, like that, those swingers clubs were always the places where I had problems with people touching me without consent. Uh, when I was working as like a model, it was always kind of the just a very different attitude. And I not I've met swingers that I loved and were wonderful people. I, I don't want to say that every single swinger is like that, but I do think that for whatever reason, that culture is. I find that culture the most different out of all of the different realms of like sex positivity living that I've been exposed to or a part of. Thank God there's someone like John and Jackie out there at Open Love 101 that they really are like sending a really good message for the swinger community and their culture and their gray sex positive people. So I, I feel like there's a lot more growth and is happening. Not that, you know, p- people would have different preference, but there's also some are really old school that they've been doing it for like 30 years. You've been they during party before I was born. So so it's hard to go like, you need to do something else. Yeah, for sure. I did. It tends to, uh, pardon the youth, it tends to swing a little bit older too. Like the yeah. demographics and swinger communities tend to be, not that there's not, because especially leather, like the leather world, there are people that are well into their 60s and 70s and are still very active in it. But I think the average like age demographic and swingers tends to lean more I guess not even like like 40s 50s now it's just a little more in that time period and like a little bit more um enforcement of like gender normative behavior that kind of thing in general I worked at this swingers club this is one of my favorite things that has ever existed I used to do like part-time modeling at this swingers club in Denver that uh during the day was an orphaned squirrel rehabilitation center (laughs) (laughs) I'm not fucking kidding it was like a wildlife rescue so there'd be like swinger parties happening and then there's like certain places where it'd be like please be quiet the baby squirrels are sleeping in their incubators please don't fuck so loudly (laughs) it's the weirdest place I have ever been I've been a lot of fucking weird places that no that's not the weirdest one I went to a sex dungeon one time on the south side of Chicago that was in the basement of an abandoned karate dojo and the mm. only way you could get in was to go back around behind the dumpsters, down these steps, knock three times on this one red door, 
And then you could get in. And when I got in there, there was just, I'm, I am not making this up. I really wish I was. It was this enormous basement space. And the guy like gives us a tour. And it, like, here's the thing. If you are ever at a place and you're at a tour and they come to a point where they're like, and this is where we do the blood. And it's a small subterranean room with a single drain in the middle. <laughs> Maybe you should leave because the only other people there were a bunch of homeless people getting out of the rain and the only thing they had to drink was root beer and rum in Sizzler cups. Thousands of cups from a Sizzler. I don't know where they got them. Did someone there work at a Sizzler? Did they steal them from the Sizzler? No idea. Yeah. If anyone is listening to this and knows what I'm talking about, I have so many questions. This was like four years ago and I still think about it all the time. (laughs) Sometimes I wish I had your experiences. I have seen some shit working in this industry. <laughs> What's the craziest thing you've seen? You can't just say that. <laughs> I have so many. Um, okay, this is you want to hear something that is more controversial that is, is a very hot button debate. So for many, many, many uh, swinger party, that used to be the chocolate room. Okay, let me talk about it in a way that I'm only reporting, okay? I'm not taking any side. So the chocolate room are usually run by a bunch of black men and is usually involved the fantasy of white women going in, getting a gangbang from a bunch of black men. And the room is run by black men and they call it the chocolate room. So later in the, in the past couple of years, it became too racist to call it the chocolate room. So not not because of the the people who run that room, but because you know somebody filed a complaint. We can't. This is too racist. We can't call it the chocolate room. So and part of a lot of eroticism taboo is being taboo. That's why it's a turn on. So now you bring PC culture into an erotic scene. <laughs> so they call it the M1 room. So everybody runs around at a sex party looking for the chocolate room, but they can't find it. And you have to tell them to go to M1, which is insane to me. So I mean, this is why Blacked has a huge following. It's taboo. It's it appeals to a very specific thing people want to see regardless however you feel about it there is a market for it market for it for sure i think personally a lot of our and again this is just my personal theory a lot of our kinks and our particular sexual fetishes arise from things that scare us or make us uncomfortable and i think a lot of like one of the ways that our brain through adolescence deals with those things is to fetishize them. Because to me, it's always been taking the power back. I have a very heavy, like, misogynist kink. A very heavy, like, patriarchy kink. I'm obviously, like, a huge feminist. Like, I clearly don't believe any of this, but I kind of grew up in a world that was more patriarchal. Like, I fetishize it. And that was very much my way of dealing with it. And I see a lot of parallels with that when it comes to, like, race play, domination, et cetera, like, whatever. Because, I mean, I know gay guys that are the most just absolutely super, super gay, very proud of their identity, and they love to be beaten and whipped and shamed for it. That gets them off. And so I think it, it is one of those things that it's our brain's way of protecting us. Mm-hmm. And find pleasures. Pleasure is very healing. Mm-hmm. And to find pleasure and to take power back, yeah. I had a girl yesterday that I knew several years ago who uh, was very king shamey of some of my stuff, like even on my scenes that I had worked with. And literally yesterday I tweeted that thing about, well, I guess my cancellation is imminent. Make the porn you want to see. And she like replied and she's like, I hate that I know why this is. And I was like, are you serious? I was like, it's been years. I was like, you're still going to kink shame me for something that was very clearly like 
hey, I realize this is problematic. This is my way of taking it back. I try not to, like, and I've always done this, whether it was in porn or in, like, sex, positivity, sex work, whatever. I never do anything that I'm uncomfortable with or that I don't feel like I belong in that dialogue, Um, especially when it came to, like, rice play. I'd just be like, there, I don't belong in this dialogue. I'm the whitest person I've ever met. That's the thing when it comes to all these things that are very taboo Mm -hmm. or when people are trying to take things that are very derogatory back, you know, within the gay community, there's a number of different words where are very derogatory that, you know, the gay community has taken back. There's a number of words that, you know, uh, women have taken back, you know, like bitch and slut. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it's really personal for me to take the word Karen back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Have you seen me? Don't even try. You're not going to be able to pull off that Kate Gosling haircut. Just imagine. Just John and Kate plus eight. We can do this. Your hair's too wispy. You have to have that, like, thick... I'll just adopt eight children. It'll be close enough. There you go. But I'm sorry. I, I interrupted you, Kenneth. You said you have a partner who's... Her uh, name is Karen. Now has- no, no. Her name <laughs> oh, is <no>. Karen, so <laughs> she gets a lot of shit for it. But she's the sweetest, yeah. <laughs> and she's definitely not a Karen. I've liked every Karen I've ever met. My kindergarten teacher is named Karen. Wonderful woman. Adore her to this day. I've never met a Karen, like someone who was actually named Karen that I disliked. You know, since that this show is more like, I would love to tell you guys some fun story on how I met Karen and then our relationship right now. Sure, yeah, please. So I'm in a poly V dyad. So, is, so me and Geronimo are engaged with her. We proposed together. But the fun part of this story, so we proposed together, we surprised her, we were working a really big like burner, like party and Halloween is her favorite holiday. And I, I, we do a lot of performance too. So we asked her to come on stage in front of all the people. And then we just kind of like did a strip tease on her. Then we proposed to her in front of everybody together. So it was really kind of cute. There's a video on YouTube. You could watch it. Um, I'm definitely going to watch it after this. Yeah. So um, just search kind of play on YouTube and you will find it is... One girl, two ring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so cute. <Okay. laughs> Very similar to your name. But the fun part is that I met Geronimo at a gangbang. So it was a friend of mine who's who's writing this article about giving, uh, fulfilling one of her girlfriend's fantasy of having a gangbang. So she invited, you know, he invited me and a couple other guys for this birthday gangbang, which is curated for her. And then I was DPing the birthday girl. And then I go like, oh, this guy is fucking beautiful. And she's super picky about who she likes. So I'm going like, you will love this guy. So I introduced them. And then they fell in love. And then now we're this crazy relationship. So how do you, because I've been in several poly relationships too. How do you balance that? Because people are always so fascinated by how you deal with jealousy, you deal with time, you deal with, you know, how do you compartmentalize that in your head? Because I know I have my answers, but I always like hearing other people's too. I find it actually lately has been more challenging than other times because before was more of a hierarchical. So we were life partner and we would have like secondary or just, you know, play partners and lovers, etc. I didn't expect her to fall in love or I didn't expect him to fall in love with her as much as I thought because he's such a slutty person like myself and I didn't know he's gonna fall in love so hard and he's in his 40s and I'm turning 40 next year and he wanted a baby yesterday and then now she's at baby age and I'm not so pro baby so we've been negotiating and he never felt in love till he's in his 40s so he was in full-on infatuation with her I have to learn how to like let them 
not let them, but you know, support them on falling in love. Mm-hmm. And he also wanted to marry her and have a baby with her yesterday. So we've been negotiating all that. And for me, it was challenging emotionally to think about this difference between having another lover versus that you having a child with another man, and have to overcome all my Chinese value, and then have to have this awkward conversation with my mother, who's very Asian. <laughs> She's like. You're a fucking whore, and she's a doctor. Give her a baby. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so, but you know, I am learning how to, you know, love more unconditionally. Especially, it's her choice to what she do with her body and having a baby. And if I was gonna have a baby, I would pick Geronimo too, because he's like oozing daddy energy. So he's a good bet. So we're we're working all this out, and we're in the middle of all of that. That's huge! Wow, good for you guys. That is some tricky waters to navigate for yeah. sure. I never yeah. got to the baby point, but I definitely did. Like, live in a house where with my primary partner, where we both had secondary partners. And whenever people would ask me about it, it'd be like, you know, I'd be like, yeah, he's playing with her downstairs, and I'm up here like making dinner and full laundry, and they're having a good time. And when they come up, we're all gonna eat. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she, I always would say it as like, look, I fucking hate going to the gun show with your dad on Sunday, but mm-hmm. Monica loves it. <laughs> Take Monica. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to go. That's my one day to sleep in. I love that you have another girl that's basically just another version of me and you can take her. Like, that is so convenient for me. Yeah, I'm not a pet person, and they love to have a zoo. They have so many pets, so I'm like, okay, you guys do that. Good, You do you. <laughs> it does. I mean, I've always really, like, part of what's always attracted me to Polly is that I, I personally find it very, very stressful to be everything for one person. I don't want that kind of pressure. I just feel like I'm going to let him down because I'm not going to want to do everything. And I want you, I like to, I talk about it to people the same way that you have friends. Like, I have friends that I want to go to the Getty with or, you know, moment. like I have friends that I want to go to museums with and do that kind of stuff. And I have friends that I want to like get drunk in parking lots with. And they're not usually the same people. <laughs> There's something really nice about teamwork too. having Geronimo mm-hmm. is that it frees up a lot of my free time. So I could work on my career or go be a slut. And when she's fighting with one of us, there's one that, you know, she cries with. So it works out sometime. <laughs> you always have that emotional support or that yeah. like, stand in to be like uh i'm not in a position to emotionally support this person right now but you are i'm so mm. glad you that they have because i still love you and care about you i'm so glad mm. you have somebody that can yeah and triple income is awesome so <laughs> yeah that kid's going to disneyland every year <laughs> college fund set <laughs> That's amazing. And it's incredible that you guys can be also supportive. I think the problem is a lot of people just can't get over the hurdle of jealousy and, you know, sharing someone else. So what I'm saying is you're, you both are more evolved than my relationships. Um, actually- oh, I have a big thing about that. Oh, you go first. I have a big thing about that. You go first. You know, um, so being an educator, and sometimes I get too nerdy about stuff like this, but there's actually... It really depends on your personality trait. So jealousy is also a personality trait, like your attachment style is a personality trait. So I just like all humans, some are introverts, some are extrovert. So I don't think poly is for everybody. Same thing, monogamy is not for everybody. And for me, like I do monogamy really well four hours at a time. So four hour monogamy is my jam, you know? And sometimes I love a good four hour to be very monogamous and that feels great. But other times I would love to have freedom. So I don't think it's always on and off. But 
but personality definitely have a big role on it. For sure. One thing I would always say, and I would always touch on this when I was teaching classes and stuff too, is that jealousy and envy are different emotions. And it's really important to distinguish between them because jealousy says, I want this thing and I want this other person to not have it. I want it all for myself and I want it for me. Whereas envy says, this person has this thing and I want it too, but I don't want to take it from them. I want it too. So like with my partner at that time, I would, you know, like if he was getting very like close emotionally with another partner or very, especially affectionate because we'd been dating for several years. And so he didn't see the need for me to have affection. I'm also not like a super affectionate person. So it was me being like, okay, wait, I don't want you to not be affectionate with this other girl. I just want it too. Can you bring that into our relationship as well? Because I'm seeing it and I'm wanting it. And so that envy is a very healthy emotion. It's your brain's way of telling you something that you need, whereas jealousy is destructive. So to me, the differentiation between those is is so important because once you know that, then you're like, oh, wait a second. I don't need to take anything from anybody else. I can have it too. Mm -hmm. There's plenty to go around. You can have your cake and eat it too. Fuck yeah, yeah, you can. (laughs) My birthday's coming up again. You know who's going to eat another birthday cake by themselves this year? This bitch. Fuck yeah, pandemic. The only time that you can eat your entire birthday cake by yourself. Ooh, kick seat sitting is a big thing now. Another genre. People love watching like bare butt sitting on cake. Like you could do a coconut cream cake so it's like more hygienic. On those plastic couches. I know. <laughs> Even the sugar that would make me. I did last year. I did a live stream on my OnlyFans where, because it was like my birthday was at the beginning of lockdown last year, and I was like turning twenty six, and I was just kind of bummed, and I'd realized I was going to quit porn, and everything was everywhere. So I drank a bottle of champagne in my bathtub, and then one of my friends had ordered me this absolutely beautiful cake. I mean, like I've never had a cake like this. This was from like a Russian bakery. This cake was like well over $100. I would never buy something like this for myself. And it was this beautiful like mocha chiffon cream cake. And I went downstairs and I got it and I just called him crying. And I was like, thank you so much. It's so great. And then I ate it on a live stream on my OnlyFans where I took a fork and I dug directly into the middle. (laughs) Because how many times in your life do you get to do that? I've wanted to do that since I was like eight years old and had a birthday cake. And you have content for a live stream. Yeah, exactly. And just literally was like, this is the most baller fucking thing. I want to do this every year. Like, I'm so glad I got to do it because normally birthday cakes are shared. And that's great. It's fun to share them with people you love. It's also really fun to dig directly into a beautiful cake by yourself. This episode I know is being released like end of February or something of the sort, but I'm a February 14th baby. (gasps) Yourself? April 13th. April 13th. Okay. I, you were like, oh, it's coming up soon. I thought, are we going to be close? No, it's no, like we're two not. months. Sorry. It's like six weeks. That's not terribly long. The problem with being born on Valentine's Day is everything is overpriced. That said, there are sometimes cool events that do happen on Valentine's Day. Like a few years ago, I got to go to uh, the Hayden Planetarium. They had this beautiful shindig um, where you could essentially just roam around uh, the planetarium and have cocktails and snacks and stuff and take photos next to rocks. And I may or may not have licked an asteroid. Um, (laughs) And then afterwards, they took you into the big sphere and they talked about different constellations and mythology and whatnot, which was really nice and romantic. But everything's really overpriced. I can't, I'll never forget the first time my boyfriend tried booking something for my birthday. It was just dinner. And uh, 
<laughs> it was a week before. And uh, I, I told him good luck, and he was not able to book something uh, easily at all. Yeah, but you get those really great seasonal little Debbie cakes that are shaped like pink hearts with the white icing that as a child I loved so much. I made my mom buy like five boxes of them at Walmart and keep them for two months so I could bring them into my first grade class as my birthday treat. You're making the assumption I eat those. Uh <laughs> Do you not? What is wrong with you? They're one of life's simple little pleasures. Cake in a plastic baggie. Zebra cakes all the way, bitch. Zebra cakes are good, too. They're very They're basically exactly the same as zebra cakes. They're just heart-shaped, and they're pink. And as a tiny child, I wanted my birthday to be in February so bad when I was a little kid. Because everything was pink and had hearts. And, like, my birthday's in April, so it's always around Easter. So it's always just, like, fucking bunnies and eggs, which I don't like eggs. And... Also, I grew up super, super Catholic, so my mom would always be like, this is the most important holiday in our church. And I'd be like, it's also my birthday. I guess my only other gripe has always been that uh, I always wanted to spend my birthday with my friends, and you can't do that on Valentine's Day. I mean, maybe you guys can. Yeah, I mean, oh, wow. I mean, when you're in a poly relationship, you definitely have more options. Oh, I thought you were just making a crap about me being single. Thanks, though. Oh. I I, know, no, I've been dodging all holidays. So I'm saying, hey, you could take the official holiday because I'm not into it. So I get the day before. And I have a, oh, this episode won't be out until afterwards. So I book her a really nice hotel room for uh, this Thursday. And it was super cheap because it's not on the official day. So so I've been hacking. Nice. <laughs> Love that. Sex and financial hacking. Yeah. Boom. This guy is the master. So, Kenneth, where can our listeners find more of you? And you have a full course as well. Yes. Um, they can find me at kennethplay.com where I have their Sex Hacker Pro course, which is, I have over 12 hours of content, 70 plus video. I teach it like more like a, a video game designed where you could level up with different things. So you could work on anal, kink, oral, penetration, fingering to even very romantic uh, sex hack where you give people a luxurious bath experience where it's all central or you could take her into a shower and wash her and then lick her butthole before you do first time anal. Um, I think all those things are super useful and to make her feel clean. Yeah. Hot tip. Always a good time to eat the scrum in the bat in the shower. I've said this on so many podcasts. If you're going to lick someone's butthole, do it in the shower. In the shower. Because you cleaned it first. Wait, or why the like, shower? No, you, you, because clean. you cleaned it. You cleaned it first, so you oh, lick okay. it. And there's a psychological trick because you wash it so they feel clean and then you licked it so they feel more comfortable because you've done those two things. So sort of go like, I'm okay with my butthole now psychologically. Oh. And also if you add a little vibrator while you're licking the butt in the shower that is waterproof, then they get a positive association with that butt licking too. So I think that does a great the first time anal for Valentine's Day hack if you like. Works for dudes, too. Just take the vibrator very gently on the ball sack while you lick their butthole in the shower. Works for all genders and all representations. <laughs> Do it with anybody. Yep. <laughs> all right. Trying that. I want to say tonight, but we both might be tired. So tomorrow <laughs> is a new day. Yeah. Uh, so we have some patrons to thank, as usual. And this week, we want to thank... David Ott, Phil Thompson, Chris Clark, Jim DeKiwiFruit, Holy Shike, Falco Hyfing, Kyle Washington, Elisa, Mr. Danks, Neil Simpson, Richard Horrell, and many, many others.
If you want to become a patron as well, head on over to patreon.com slash two girls and Mike or two girls and and hit the support button uh, because you pay our lovely editor and you guys help keep the lights on as usual. Plus you get the full video version of this as well. Our listeners will also get 50% off Ken's course with code T-G-O-M. So head on over to kennethplay.com. And Kate, where can our listeners find more of you? So you can listen to my new podcast, which comes out on Alice's birthday, February 14th. It is called Cam Girl Chronicles presented by I'm Live. It's your weekly peek behind the scenes at the crazy wild world of Cam Girls. I'm your host. It's really funny. It's a safe for work comedy podcast. Um, I've had a lot of fun making it the last couple of months, and I'm really, really excited for it to come out. So please go check it out at camgirlpod.com. You can find me on Twitter at the OG Kennedy. That's the as in the. OG is an original gangster, Kennedy like the dead president. And you can find me on Instagram at the PG Kennedy because it is safe for work. You can find my OnlyFans at theogkennedy.com. Uh, and then my link tree is uh, on my linked on my Twitter and I think my Instagram as well that has just all my links. You can also visit my personal website for my all of my updates, all of my writing, etc. And that is semiprocockjockey.com. <laughs> and Kenneth, is there anything else that you want to plug while you're on here? Yes, I just finished writing my first book during the pandemic. I've been what? in lockdown mode. And the book title is called Beyond Satisfy. I'm so excited. It's about endless orgasm, mind-blowing connection, and lasting confidence. Basically, the collection of all the best sex hacks that I found around the planet. And I got to research some of the top neuroscientists and kinksters and tantra masters to show people like amazing different tips and tricks. And ultimately to create a sex hacking method to teach people how to be the best lover they could possibly be and and also really make the deep connection with people they love. So I hope you guys check it out in the future. Congratulations. That's huge. I'm definitely going to check it out. I can't believe you were productive in a pandemic. Know, kind of. Yeah, congratulations, but also like a little fuck you. <laughs> I didn't finish my book. Uh, no sex parties. Or we were... <laughs> Use all my edging energy to write a book. <laughs> so we were talking about edging for hours. You edged for what? 12 months? 12 months to write a book. <laughs> I think everybody will write a book in their lifetime if they have to edge for 12 months. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really fun. And guys, you could find myself uh, over at Rational Blonde on Twitter, but you could find the show at all places, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at TGOM Podcast. But again, you can catch us here next week. So just make sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Bye-bye. David Ott, Phil Thompson, Chris Clark, Jim DeKiwiFruit, Holy Shike, Falco Hyfing, Kyle Washington, Elisa, Mr. Danks, Neil Simpson, Richard Horrell, and many, many others.